morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Good. Uh, open your Bibles to First Thessalonians. We're going to finish up this book this morning. We will be on, if you're using the Pew Bible, we'll be on page 1048. And as always, if uh, you have any questions about anything we go over or anything we uh, miss, um, you can jump on slido.com, type in RevCDA in the prompt, and uh, we'll look through any questions that come up at the end. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for who you are, that you are everything that is good and right and pure and holy, and that anything in this world that is not that is out of congruence with you. God, I pray that you would um, continue to be faithful to us like you promised that you will, that you would continue to be shaping us into the image of your son, that as we recognize the incongruencies in our own lives, um, and, and even sometimes when we don't, and, the, and just the, the failure on our part of, of, of not seeing our own flaws, God, I just pray that you would be gracious to us and that you would work to shape us and mold us, to gently correct us, to guide us through your word, by your spirit, through your people. God, I pray for uh, Transform Ministries this morning, who is um, grieving the loss of one of the members of their church. Um, pray for the Knight family as they grieve the loss of a husband and father. God, I just, I'm, I'm grateful for, for Jackson's words this morning. Uh, Jesus, that you have defeated death. As we read a couple weeks ago, those that we have lost are not lost. They are. They're with you and will return with you. And our hope is built on the resurrection. And God, as we, as we look at some, some practical things about what it looks like to be your people in the church, God, ground us in the hope of the resurrection. Ground us in the grace that you've given us in Christ. Ground us in the fact that, that we are your people and we don't have to earn that status. We've been given that status and we just get the opportunity to walk out that as we live our lives. Strengthen us and grow us by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple weeks ago for my birthday, my wife uh, took me on a trip to a cabin um, north of Leavenworth, it was an Airbnb. And um, we went into the cabin and all over the cabin were these little laminated signs. There's one about like how to turn on the hot tub and one about where to find extra toilet paper and uh, how the VCR remote control worked. And they were just posted everywhere. And and you just got the impression right away that like we'd been, we'd been given this space, well, we, we purchased this space for the weekend, um, but the owners of the space had some parameters by which you were going to live while you were there. They, it, was, it belonged to them, and they, 
it were inviting us in to participate in it, but they said, okay, while you're here, this is the way we do things, and this is how we want you to do things. And after a while, you start out by reading the signs, but after a while, you slowly kind of get into the, okay, we're, we're going to use the hot tub so I know which button to push. And I think what Paul is doing here in this text is, is similar in some ways in that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. We, we are invited to be a part of this community, of this body of people. And, but there's, there's some ground rules. There's some parameters. There's some ways that we are supposed to live out our lives in community and the church. And Paul is going to finish this book this letter to the Thessalonians by listing a few different ways that he expects us to live out our lives in community with one another. And these are ways that are going to mark us and shape us as God's people. And I've got, I've got four categories here that I, that I think we can um, divide this section up into. And the first one is, is attitude towards leadership. The second one is care for one another. Uh, the third one is supernatural joy. And the fourth one is learning or being taught by the Word and the Spirit. So we start off in ch uh, chapter 5, verse 12. And Paul says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among them, yourselves. So the first thing that he brings up is the church's attitude and um, relationship with leaders. And he says, these leaders, these are the people that labor among you. And this attribute of leadership, I think, is really important. The, those who lead in the church are expected to work hard. There's a kind of running joke in, uh, in, the, in church circles where, you know, you, you talk about the pastor and how he works one day a week, right? Um, and that might be true for some church leaders, but all of the church leaders that I know work really, really hard for the people of God. They work really, really hard to serve their churches. They study and they meet and they counsel and they read and they grow and they visit people in the hospital and they pray for people who are hurting. See, labor, work, what we might call service is a key aspect to Christian leadership. Jesus says in Luke 22, if he, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. And the classic example of this is from Jesus himself, right? In, in John's gospel in the upper room, at the Passover meal, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is the role that the lowest of the low servant would take. You're wearing sandals. Your feet are open. You're walking the dusty roads where the animals also walk and, and do their business. And so there's all kinds of gross stuff on your feet. 
And it's the lowest servant's job to clean up the feet of the guests. And Jesus takes that job on himself. as a model of the kind of service that he wants from his leaders. And this is a really important reminder for any of of us in this room that, that are leaders or feel called to leadership in the church. If you are unwilling to serve people in what you would consider lesser things, you're not yet qualified in God's eyes to lead his people. If there are certain kinds of things that you will not do because, well, that's not my calling. My calling is this thing over here, and and I'm just, I'm not doing that. That's a sign that you haven't really grasped the heart of Christ for leadership in his church. And as a leader in this church, this is a temptation for me. This is a, a real way that the enemy tries to break into my heart by saying, hey, you know what? You don't have to do that. You, you, should, you should slack off a little bit. Take a break. You deserve to be served. They owe you. And these are the kind of thoughts as a leader that the enemy uses to poke at me. And I have to, to push that away. I have to speak the truth into my life in those moments. And all of you, some of you in this room are also leaders in this church. And beware of that temptation to say like, oh, this is, this is my role. I lead here and I'm up here and other people are down here. No, if you're a leader, you should see yourself at the bottom as a servant of everyone. Paul says these these people, they labor and they lead. The the word lead is, is the same word that Paul uses to instruct Timothy and Titus to raise up elders and deacons who manage their own households well. That's the word lead. Manage is is the same Greek word. And sometimes we think leadership in, in our culture is, is organizational leadership. I mean, many of us have probably read like leadership books by, um, you know, Simon Sinek or I don't know, there's a hundred different people, Adam Grant, or there's a bunch of people that are writing leadership books about how to uh, create an organi- organizational leadership model that is successful and efficient and thriving. And, and there's all these tips and tricks and, and those, that's not necessarily bad. But when you think of a man who manages his household well, we're not talking about organizational leadership. We're talking about love and care for people. Someone in the church isn't a leader because of their spreadsheet abilities or because of their visionary um, gifts or because their strategic planning is off the charts. It's because... They care for people. And there is a, there's a tendency in the church, there's a philosophy of the church that says that we need to grow at all costs, right? And this comes from a, uh, a place of, 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 of a good place, right? Of, of like, we want to see people meet Jesus. We want to see the kingdom advance. But if we're not careful, that can twist into a kind of church environment where people actually get run over by the machine because we don't really care about individuals anymore. We care about numbers and statistics and size. And this isn't biblical leadership. Biblical leaders care about people. 
I hear this all the time when people talk about our community group leaders. These are leaders who give their time and their energy and their homes away to serve all of us. How they love and they care for people that gather in their homes. How they stay up late counseling and praying with others. They give of themselves over and over for those under their care. Paul says these people lead, they labor and they lead. And he says they admonish. Admonish is not a word that we often use, but it, it means to exhort or push or even rebuke. It's kind of a, um, if you're going into an admonishment conversation, it's, it's not a fun one. Let me say it that way. And this is hard. This is hard for me. I'm not a natural admonisher. I do my best admonishing in the shower. So, and then I said this, and I was going to say this, and I'll tell them that. But when it actually comes to people, I tend to want to uh, deflect and um, keep peace, make things smooth. But sometimes, because I am a leader in God's church, sometimes I'm called to call people out, to say hard things, to have a meeting with someone that is not going to go well. And that's, that's what I signed up for. <laughs> that's what Brian signed up for. We get, we get the fun job of doing those things sometimes. Not because we want to beat people down, but because we love people. And sometimes people need to be corrected. Because at one time or another, we all need to hear difficult things. And it's often the leader's responsibility to be the one delivering that message. So Paul identifies these people who lead in God's church, and, and he gives us insight in how to interact with our leaders. And we are called to interact with our leaders. I, I say that because we are a church that is overseen by a plurality of elders. We believe that this is the model of church governance that the scriptures have given us. I am one of those elders, but so is Brian. And we have two men who are provisional elders, Jer Schumacher and Victor Borchard, who serve as elders from a distance. And there will be other men that God is raising up and identifying in this congregation that are going to replace those provisional elders someday soon. But the fact is, like, I'm not the guy in charge of this church. And so this word to our elders from Paul is as much to me as it is for everyone else, because I am a member of this church in submission to the elders as a plurality. It's the attitude that I should have just as much as everyone else. And he says that the leaders deserve recognition and high regard. And this must be done in a context of love. It would be unloving to disrespect and ignore those who lead in this congregation. Hebrews 13, 17, which is a verse that just it keeps me up at night. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not grief for that would be unprofitable for you. The elders of this church will give an account for those souls that we keep watch over. That's a frightening thing that God and I are going to have a conversation one day of how I have cared for the members of this church. And the author of Hebrews here tells the church to give the leaders a break. 
make their leadership joyful and not grievous. Some of you make it a joy to lead this church. Some of you do. Most of you do. That's okay, Carl. I forgive you. (laughs) But it would also be unloving, on the flip side, to put leaders on a pedestal, to just become yes men and, and not hold leadership accountable to the gospel. Like we're all just people who have been called to different things and and to just like let the leadership do whatever they want is equally harmful to the body of Christ. And so recognition and high regard has to be done in a way that is loving and comes with accountability to the ultimate leader who is Christ. Paul says, "This this is how I want you to understand your attitude towards leadership. But then he moves on and says, this is how I want you to care for one another. In verse 14, we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one replays evil for evil, but but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. See, what starts out as a call toward regarding the leaders turns into a command to do the work of the ministry yourself. John Stott says, the existence of pastors does not relieve members of their responsibilities to care for one another. The church does not appoint leaders to do the work of the ministry. The church appoints leaders to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4.11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. See, this is your job Every single one of you. It's not, it's not just me and Brian's job. It's not just the community group leader's job. It's not just the, the deacon's job. It's the congregation's job. And what is the job? We're, we're called to warn the idol. The word idol could be translated unruly or out of line. It's the same word as the word admonish above. So even though me and Brian get the great opportunity to have uncomfortable conversations sometimes... We all have that job. We all get to enter into that space where we go, hey, I really feel the Lord is leading me to tell you that that this is out of line in your life. Sometimes we, we all just do foolish things. And the aspect of God's grace that we need is, hey, knock it off. Stop that. And it's funny, like, again, some of us are built to where, like, we're like, I love that part of being a Christian. I just can't wait to just admonish and warn. It's so much fun. Most of us aren't built that way. And it, and it, it, it causes, like, cold sweat to think, like, oh, I'm not going to go talk to them about that. But in my experience, those kind of conversations usually go better than I think they will. An example that is the opposite of that, I, I, was, I was leading the worship ministry at the Croc Center a number of years ago, and we had someone playing bass for us, and I found out that he was uh, living in a sinful sexual relationship with his girlfriend. And I, I called him, and we had a meeting, and I said, hey, I, he- I heard about this. Is this true? And, and he said, yes, it's true. And I said, man, I just, we can't be doing that. We're, being, we're called to holiness, and if we're going to represent God's people on this stage and, and, and be... Um, 
ministers of the gospel through song, our lives have to be in order. How can, how can I help you work this out so that this situation doesn't continue? And he left the church. And it, that bumps me out. Most of the time, that's what I think is going to happen when I have to have a difficult conversation, when I have to warn somebody or admonish someone. But that's the exception, not the rule. The vast majority of difficult conversations I've had turn out really well. Because the truth is, if somebody knows that you love them, even a rebuke is seen in that light. Proverbs 27.6 says, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. So if we are a people that are growing closer to one another in this community, and we recognize mutually that we love one another, when somebody needs to be corrected, it's taken as an instance of love. You know what? Thank you so much for caring enough about me to bring up this difficult thing. Warn the idle, comfort the discouraged. The discouraged is literally the little soul. Gordon Fee says, people who had been so thoroughly overcome by present circumstances as to feel themselves unable or simply unwilling to continue on in their service within the beleaguered Christian community. Maybe, these are the, maybe this is the category of people who had lost loved ones from chapter four. Maybe they're suffering from some other hardship. This whole community in Thessalonica is being persecuted. So maybe that's, that's financial persecution. Maybe that's physical persecution. There's imprisonment. There's all kinds of things happening. And there is a category of people that are just at their wit's end. They just feel like they cannot continue on anymore. And it's gotten so bad that maybe the answer for them is to just leave this Jesus thing altogether. Maybe you know people in this place. Maybe you feel that way today. Like, I just don't even know if I can continue to be a Christian anymore. Things are so hard. And Paul says, comfort these people. Some people just need to be sat with hugged, reminded of the promises of God. Sometimes this includes, uh, in our understanding, this would include mental, uh, mental illness, grief, anxiety, depression. There are, there are these things that get a hold of us, and we just can't figure out how to let go of them. And we need to be on the lookout for ways that we can bring comfort to the lives of people who are struggling. And he says, Thirdly, help the weak. The idea here is, is, is holding up someone who can't stand on their own. Bring your strength to their situation. This may be somebody who is weak because of sin and temptation. Maybe be somebody who is, is struggling in some other way. Galatians 6, 2 says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. We need to be filled with the spirit of Jesus to work in us to do these things. Because the next thing he says is to be patient. Warning the idle person might take a moment, maybe. Comforting is probably a longer process. But what about helping the weak? What about holding up someone who is not strong? Is that, is that like a single coffee date? No, maybe that's, maybe that's weeks. Maybe that's years. 
Some of you have been walking with people who are struggling for years and years and years, and you are the constant companion helping them along. And I don't know about you, but when I am operating in my own strength, I get real tired of that real fast. I need the strength of Christ to speak into these situations and to walk people through difficulty. And furthermore, the big question for this text is, how do you know the difference? How do you know when you're supposed to warn someone? How do you know when you're supposed to comfort them? How do you know when you're supposed to help them? Are they, are they out of line? Are they discouraged? Are they weak? Which one is it? These categories blur sometimes in my mind. When does someone need comfort more than a rebuke? When is your supporting their weakness actually allowing their bad behavior? How are we supposed to know? Because we're filled with the Spirit of Christ. Because His strength and His wisdom inside us gives us insight. The reminder to patience is a reminder of God's character, right? Our patience is a supernatural gift that we're given by the Holy Spirit, and it comes from God. God is so patient with us. All of us, at some point or another, are idle, weak, discouraged. And God doesn't throw us away, right? God is patient with us. Paul says, see to it. He's speaking to the congregation. He's speaking to the members of this church that it is our collective responsibility. Like this isn't, this isn't a command to the leadership. It's a command to us all. And I think this speaks... Brian talked about it in the announcements, but it speaks to the idea of meaningful membership. It matters that we are members of a body. Um, our membership covenant, one of the lines says, we agree to a covenant relationship expressed in dependence upon responsibility for and accountability to each other by God's grace. Part of what becoming a member of Revelation Church means is that your heart is tuned to the heart of the people of God here. Not because the people of God outside of this church are bad or wrong or anything, but because a place and a time and a people is important to the expression of your faith. And the reason we take membership so seriously, the reason we have a covenant and we you know, assign, make you sign it and there's a class and, and there's all that because it, it reflects an attitude of the heart that says, yes, I want to be a part of what's going on in this place. I'm going to give myself to these people. It creates a, a community of people who know that we have each other's backs, that we can hold each other accountable, that we, can, that we will love each other well when we're struggling. How do you know when it's your job to, to step into this role? Here's a hint. If you've been given the privilege of seeing your brother or sister in need, then maybe God is calling you to be the one that meets that need. What can often happen if we have this out of order is that some, something is happening, somebody's hurting or somebody's walking in sin and you see it and you go to the leaders and go, hey, just wanted to let you know, Bob's really screwing up. You should deal with it. No. If you've been given that information, maybe you should deal with it. Jesus actually has a whole series of steps laid out in Matthew 18, right? 
If you, and if you see your brother in this situation, like you go privately and you deal with it. And, and at that point, if they don't respond, then maybe it's appropriate to bring the leadership of the church into that. But as Jesus' people, you have been equipped and called to do the work of the ministry together. And Paul's priority here is that we would live out Jesus' command to not return evil for evil, but that we would pursue good. And he says, what is good for one another and for all. See, this this attitude of pursuing good starts in the church and it extends to the world. See, fellow Christians are where you get to practice loving your enemies. There's a, I know very little about this because I just did five minutes of Google searching, but um, when the military is doing simulations with its infantry, they use um, something called simunitions, which are basically, as far as I can tell, uh, bullets that fit their gun, but they've got paintballs in them. And so they get to use their real weapons, use their real tactics, but they fire bullets that are safe. And the reason they do that is because they want to practice for the real thing. They want to be prepared for the world out there, for the war out there, but they want to do it in such a way that is not going to get them killed in practice. And I think when we think about loving our enemies in the church, we get this backwards. We assume non-Christians are going to hurt us, and so we give them slack, right? You ever, you ever say that or hear somebody say that? Like, well, they're not a Christian, so I expected that they would act that way towards me. And that's fine. But then when we are hurt by a Christian, of someone who should know better, we get upset. We harbor bitterness. We leave the church. And I understand why it feels worse to get hurt by a Christian. Because again, we, maybe, maybe we've covenanted together to, to be for one another and, and to have strife and lack of reconciliation is painful. But in the church that Paul is envisioning, we are all aware that we can hurt each other, but we are also committed to making it right. And so when you are at odds with someone who is a believer, you actually have a greater opportunity to, pra- to practice loving your enemies because you don't have any real enemies because you're firing paintballs and not real bullets. We should rejoice in the fact that we get to work out conflict resolution in the church with family and use those skills that we learn to go out into the world and love those who don't know Christ. We tend to romanticize Christian community, just like we romanticize everything. If we aren't experiencing what we think we should in one church, we find another. This is often how we deal with other relationships, friends, marriages, careers. It's not working, I'll try something else. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, he says, there is probably no Christian to whom God has not given the uplifting experience of genuine Christian community. But in this world, such experience can can be no more than a gracious extra beyond the daily bread of Christian community life. We have no claim upon such experiences, and we do not live with other Christians for the sake of acquiring them. 
It is not the experience of Christian brotherhood, but solid and certain faith that holds us together. That God has acted and wants, us, wants to act upon us all, this we see in faith as God's greatest gift. This makes us happy and glad, but it also makes us ready to forego all such experience when God at times does not grant them. We are bound together by faith, not by experience. What he's saying there is the, the things that tie us together as the people of God are deeper than our lived experiences sometimes are. And the faith that we have that the people of God are for us and meant for us in God's grace should give us the resources to work through things when they are difficult instead of bailing for something that we think might be easier. Paul talks about leadership. He talks about caring for one another. And then he talks about joy. In verse 16, he says, Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I like it when Paul says stuff like this. Paul told us what God's will for us was in chapter 2. It was holiness and sexual purity. He gives us more insight into what God's will is here. And it's supernatural joy. This is one of those places where, I don't know if you've heard this story, um, the verses in your Bible aren't original, right? Uh, they were put in, in uh, I think around the 16, 15 or 1600s, and the story is the guy that was responsible for all the verses did all of his verse work while riding on horseback, and so sometimes you get to some verses that are like numbered weird, and you think like, what is going on? It's probably just because the horse jumped over something and he made a mistake. That's, that's true. I, I'm not making that up. Um, but this, these verses are, are just so staccato. 16, rejoice always. 17, pray constantly. 18, give thanks in everything. And it can lead us to believe that Paul is just rattling off a list of com unrelated commands. But that's not what he's saying. I think all of this is one statement. He says, be joyful. And how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to do it through prayer and gratitude. Remember, this church is suffering persecution and loss. This isn't just a call to put on a happy face and pretend that everything's okay. No, nothing else matters. Everything's fine. I don't have any feelings. It's a call to experience this joy that comes from the Holy Spirit in spite of difficult circumstances. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in youth group, we were going through the fruit of the Spirit, and we got to the fruit joy, and we discovered as we were looking up different verses about joy in the New Testament that almost always joy is commanded in the context of suffering. Joy is not something that is remarkable after you win the lottery. Joy is something that is remarkable after your house is taken from you, after you're thrown in prison after you're diagnosed with cancer. See, what makes the spiritual joy that comes from God supernatural is the fact that it's independent of our circumstances. And Paul says, how do we get this joy? By being a people of prayer with hearts that are thankful for God's goodness in all things. John Piper sees three ways that this constant prayer thing works. He says, you have a spirit of dependence on God in all things. So, first of all, living your life in such a way that you are constantly bringing to mind the grace of God in your life, the presence of God in your life. 
Number two, praying as often as possible over and over, having set rhythms of prayer, times of the day where I get up in the morning and I pray, or before bed I pray, or at noon I pray. Spontaneity in prayer comes from having structure. And then thirdly, Piper says, not giving up on prayer, not being someone who, I said a prayer, now I'm just going to be done, but instead that you become someone that prays over and over and over again. Jesus told a story of a woman who was seeking justice from a judge, and the way she received that justice is she prayed over and over and over and over and over again. And Jesus calls us to be people like her and pray and what is this life of prayer going to create in you? It's going to create gratitude, and it's going to create joy. And that's the kind of thing that is going to overflow from your life. Uh, we, were, we were selling some stuff on Facebook Marketplace yesterday, which is the worst thing ever. I, I mean, gosh. Um, <laughs> love your enemies. Um, but uh, this woman wanted to, we were giving away a piece of furniture that we didn't want anymore. We just, it was going to go to the dump. We thought maybe somebody could take it. And this woman goes, hey, I want it. And uh, I, everybody wanted it. I said, hey, if you want it, great, come get it. And she goes, okay, well, it's, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while. I'm like, well, there's a bunch of people that want it. So if you want it, come get it now. And she goes, okay, well, we can leave now. Where are you located? And I gave her my address. And, and, and I said, when can I expect you? She said, well, we're coming from Athol. So it depends on the traffic in that stupid town of yours, whether we'll be here in 25 minutes or more. And I don't, I don't know this person. This is a text message on Facebook Messenger. And I just thought, wow, that is a unique insight into what's going on in this woman's soul. Right? This is the thing that happens when we live in a certain way. And I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I, I didn't ask. Um, but what's in there comes out, doesn't it? If you find yourself like yelling at people or just uh, like cursing or just being grumpy and grumbling all the time or bringing everything back to what's wrong with the country or what's wrong with the world or what's wrong with... If that's kind of your just uh, the, uh, you know, pig pen in the, in the Peanuts cartoons with that, the dust cloud around it, if that's just the dust cloud around your life, like that's an indication that something is going on inside your soul. Paul says we're called to be people that are being reshaped on the inside by the Holy Spirit. And he commands us to practice consistent prayer and gratitude for the things that God has given you as part of this process to live a joyful life. Romans 12, Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We are called, we are given the responsibility by the power of God within us to have our minds transformed. What are the things that we think about? What do you fill your mind with? 
What do you focus on when your mind is free, when you have a few moments to just not be consumed by media or, or work tasks or conversations? When you're just alone with yourself, what bubbles up to the surface? Creating set rhythms of prayer combined with a, building a habit of continually redirecting your heart and your mind towards Christ will begin to change what's inside you and produce joy, give you a disposition of rejoicing always. And what is inside of you will start to spill out and people will notice. I'm, I'm sure we've, we all, all know people who are just like, wow, you're just happy. You're just joyful. You just let, let stuff roll off your back. Even when things are really difficult, some of the most godly people I know struggle with very difficult lives and yet have this supernatural joy. And yes, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's also their cooperation with the Spirit of God to have their minds renewed through prayer and gratitude. I'm super excited this fall, we're gonna be doing a spiritual discipline series. And um, we're gonna talk about a lot of different things, but a lot, some, a good portion of it is going to be on prayer. So we'll talk more about what this, it means to have a continual prayer life. Um, but this is one of the keys to joy, bringing to mind the things that God has done for you, all the ways that you can thank him, being someone who marinates in that gratitude. This is one of the marks of who we are to be as God's people. And then Paul says in verse 19, change the subject a little bit again. Not much, just a little. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. Some of your translations might say don't quench the spirit. Similar. That's what happens when you throw water on a fire, right? Quench it. And this is a pretty crazy idea to think about. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Almighty Trinity, He is at work in His church, but for some strange reason, we have the power to shut down what He wants to do. Not because we have some great power to oppose Him, but because He's just not going to force His blessings on us if we don't want them. This isn't the only time we hear this kind of language about the Spirit of God. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Acts 7, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You were always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did. You do also. 2 Timothy 1, therefore I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear but one of power and love and sound judgment. In God's kindness towards his creation, he gives us free will. And even his people who have been given his Holy Spirit can act in certain ways. We can make certain choices to where God just doesn't unleash his power in ways that he would otherwise. That's, a, that's just a wild thing to think about. The Spirit of God is at work in multitudes of ways in this body. All of you that belong to Christ this morning have been supernaturally gifted to serve other people in the name of Jesus. And in this passage, Paul is specifically talking about the gift of prophecy. 
Wayne Grudem defines prophecy as telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. So some of you in this room have been given this gift by the Holy Spirit in which there are occasions where you receive mental impressions or dreams or visions or just thoughts whose content is given to you by God and is meant to serve the church in some way. I do not have this gift, but I know people in this body that do. Maybe, maybe you get this idea that there's something that God has to say specifically to this person that you know. Maybe it's something that you believe God wants to say to the church as a whole. And if you've been gifted in this way, it's your responsibility to share that gift with the rest of us. But it's our responsibility to test it. Because you don't always know if what you think is coming from God might just be coming from undigested pizza. And this is the, this is the tricky thing about prophecy is that we are called both to believe that God speaks this way through his people, but also to know that sometimes we get it wrong and we need to test it. I've had this happen to me before. I've had, I've had people prophesy things over me before. Sometimes they've been um, wrong. Um, sometimes they've been needlessly vague and like, you know, God is going to do a good work in your life next week. Like, that's a fortune cookie prophecy. That's not very helpful. But I've also had people say really specific things. And prophecy isn't always, um, it's always prophetic. It's not always uh, predictive. It's not always something about the future, right? Sometimes it's, it's a word of encouragement. Sometimes it's a, it's a word of rebuke. But this is a gift that I believe and our church believes that is in effect in the church today. And we are called to steward it well. When it comes to the church as a whole, it's the elders that take the responsibility of testing the prophecy. If you have the gift of prophecy and you believe that God has given you a word for our church, then bring it to the elders for testing. Bring it to Brian or myself. Share it with us. We will take it to the, to the Lord and to the other elders and, and, and pray over it and, and see if it is what Paul says, good. I was reading a story this week about Tertullian's church. Tertullian was a church father in the second century. His church was in an apartment building and all of the Christians lived on, in multiple different apartments and they would all just open the doors of their apartments and uh, have the church service and sing together. I can't even imagine that. Uh, but he says that there, there's a woman in his church that spends the entire service in the, in, in the back just receiving visions from the Lord. And after the service, she walks up to the leaders and says, hey, this is kind of the impression that I've got. And is this from the Lord or not? And, and he was all for it. He thought like this, this person has been gifted by God as a prophetess and she is exercising that gift in an appropriate way by hearing something from the Lord and then submitting it to the leadership to be tested. So how do we test prophecy? I've got five quick things uh, from John Stott. The first one he says is by the scriptures. In the Thessalonians' next letter, they're all freaked out because someone told them, probably through prophecy, that they had missed the return of Christ. Jesus has already returned. This is the, this, the topic of 2 Thessalonians. And possibly because a prophetic word. And so Paul tells them that's not the case. 
And then he says, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. So he said, remember, remember 1 Thessalonians? Listen to that before a prophetic word. And secondly, by the light of Jesus. 1 John says, for this is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The person who speaks a word that is contradictory to the person and work of Jesus Christ is not giving a true prophecy. Thirdly, in light of the gospel, Galatians 1 says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. If the facts of the good news about Jesus have been changed by the prophet, then it is not a true prophecy. Number four, by the prophet's character, Matthew 7 Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. What the person who speaks a prophecy is actually like matters. What is the fruit of their lives? And then fifth, by the prophecy's content. 1 Corinthians 14 says, On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. If prophecy is being used to manipulate or... Um, oppress people, it's not of the Lord. But then, as a contrast to this, jump down to verse 27. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. This is kind of just thrown in here at the end, but if we step back a little bit, this is chronologically, 1 Thessalonians is chronologically the first New Testament letter. It's the first example of a New Testament document being read aloud in the church. And Paul doesn't say, hey, test it first. He commands the people to read it. Paul sees his apostolic authority as granting him the ability to create the Holy Scriptures. Sometimes people ask, did did Paul know that he was writing the Bible? And I would say, I think so. Maybe not in the way that it comes to us. Maybe he could have envisioned the, the whole canon of the scriptures the way we have it. But he saw his authority as coming straight from Jesus in a way that is different than the prophetic utterances that he just got done talking about. He doesn't see his letter as a prophecy to be tested. He sees it as the word of God to be submitted to. And ultimately, that is the authority that we put ourselves under. And maybe you think, like, this is just a weird thing to think about. Like, what are we talking about prophecy for? But the reality is, is we live in a world filled with, like, independent YouTube prophets, don't we? Maybe some of you are oblivious to this and good on you. But there's a whole world of people who set up little miniature empires for themselves speaking words of prophecy to the church. And some of them would have us believe that what they say is equivalent to the scriptures. But it is not. And it must be tested. And this is one place, especially, where I would say the character of the prophet matters. There are many people out in the world giving uh, their thus saith the Lord's who are not holy and godly people. And that should give us pause. The King James Version, if any of you use it, um, ends this verse, um, verse 22 with abstain from all appearance of evil. 
And I, I don't know, I know a lot of people have kind of moved away from the original King James, and, and that's fine. It, it's a good translation. It's an old translation. Um, it uses English that we don't quite all understand anymore. But this is a place where if you're using the King James Version and it says abstain from all appearance of evil, that's just not correct. That's not what this text says. Um, unfortunately, it has created this belief that as Christians, we are called to not participate in anything that you might mistake as sinful. And here's some examples of that. And in the church community I grew up in, Calvary Chapel, the, the founder of Calvary Chapel, this guy named Chuck Smith, and he would talk about how he would never go to the grocery store and buy sparkling cider because somebody might see him from the other side of the store and think he was purchasing wine, and they might be an alcoholic, and the fact that their pastor was purchasing wine might cause them to stumble. Now, as a, uh, as a conviction for him, that's perfectly fine. We're called to have convictions. God gives us convictions that might be different than other people's. But the idea that he's not doing anything wrong, but it looks like he might be doing something suspect, that comes from this verse, and it's a mistranslation of this verse. I've heard Christians shouldn't have tattoos, not because there's anything wrong with tattoos, but because a lot of people get tattoos in prison. And what if people think you've been in prison? Which again, there's a lot of questions there, but it's about the appearance of something unseemly. What if you're riding in a car with someone you're not married to on a business, maybe a, a business associate? Now, everybody ha is called to have their own convictions about this, but overall, like, well, what if, what if somebody sees me and my associate and they think we're having an affair. We can create these scenarios and play out all of this, like I'm not doing anything wrong, but somebody conceivably might see that I'm doing, think that I'm doing something wrong. And it leads us down a rabbit hole where actually we're, we're in bondage to things that we shouldn't be in bondage to. What Paul says here, and the, the Christian Standard Bible is a good translation, stay away from every kind of evil. Now, if you are tempted to have an affair with your coworker, maybe you should set up some boundaries. If you are aware of sinful behaviors that you are liable to fall into, you should stay away from those things. But the litmus test should not be somebody else might think I'm doing something wrong. It should be what does God's word say because I'm accountable to him. Then Paul closes. Now may the peace, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We've worked through this short ladder over the last few weeks. We've talked about the goodness of the gospel. We've talked about the power and deep joy of Christian community. We've talked about our mission to love the lost and preach the gospel to them. We've talked about sexuality and work ethics and the rapture and the second coming. And then this long list of other attributes and practices that Paul thinks we should be exhibiting. 
And it's possible that all of this, especially if you, you try to absorb it all quickly, might be a little exhausting. But look at how he ends the letter. He says, all the things that you need to live holy and faithful lives have been given to you in Christ. That God is ultimately the one who will be faithful to make sure you experience Jesus' return and his kingdom. Typically in the first century, letters were ended with the Greek word that means be strong. That was the salutation at the end, be strong. It feels very appropriate for our modern context. Lions, not sheep. In the first of Paul, sorry. <laughs> In the first of Paul's letters, the one that kind of sets the tone for his letter writing ministry, he sets a precedent that he follows in almost every one. He ends his letter with the word. The word grace. The word favor. God's unearned gift for us. That's the last thing he writes about. It's the last thing he wants to say to his church. It's not, hey, you got this. It's, he's got this. It's not, you can do it, but he will do it. It's not, be strong, but your strength comes from him. And so as we close this morning, as we've kind of rattled through this kind of laundry list of things that it almost feels like maybe Paul forgot. He's like, I got to throw all this stuff in before we quit. If you're a leader in this church and you feel worn out, God's grace is here for you. Maybe you're someone who is discouraged or feels weak. God's grace is here for you. Maybe you're recognizing that you need to have a difficult conversation of warning or admonishment with someone. God's grace is here for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're suffering and you're just longing for joy. God's grace is here for you. No matter where you find yourself in these words you are being invited to be a recipient of God's grace, of his kindness, of his goodness. You're not being asked to pull yourself together, to put your head down, to just muscle through. You're being invited to participate with the work of the Holy Spirit that he's already begun in your life and to be given rest for your souls, like Jesus said. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's do some questions. How do you know if you are qualified to admonish or rebuke someone? Balance between the call to do so and the log in your own eye principle. 
That is a good question. So I think, I think the log in your own eye thing is, is really important here. So Matthew 7 is where Jesus says, um, you can't help someone take a speck of wood out of their eye if you've got a log sticking out of your own eye. And he's being hyperbolic and he's kind of being, it's kind of funny, you know, it's meant to be funny. We think Jesus is super serious all the time. I think he's, he's kind of fun. Um, but the picture is that somebody's just got this giant piece of wood sticking out of their eye and they're like, hey, I, I see a speck of dust. Let me help you with that. A couple things to think about. The speck of dust and the log are the same material, aren't they? They're both wood. And so the fact that you see something in someone else might be because it's really there and you have experience with it, right? We tend, we tend to be able to pick out the sins, the problems, the deficiencies in others that we are familiar with ourselves. But if you're in the midst of that particular kind of brokenness and sin, if it's just raging in your life, the hypocrisy in that comes from, well, if, if you can't get control over it, then how are you gonna help them get control over it? Like by default, you just don't have the resources to get control of it. And so if you're someone who can say like, oh man, I see this in you and I've been there. I've experienced that before and let me tell you how I got out of it and let me tell you some, some ways that, that the gospel uh, speaks to what you're going through. I'd love to pray for you and help you with that. That's a real blessing to the church because I think sometimes we are uniquely gifted to walk with people through the things that we've already experienced. But if you're like, If you've got a porn addiction and you're going to be like, I got to rebuke that guy with a porn addiction, that's just not going to go very well. Maybe both of you need to get together and come find somebody who doesn't have a porn addiction or has, uh, it, by the power of God, overcome a porn addiction for help. Hopefully that's helpful. A lot of it has to do with reflecting on your own heart and saying like, is this something that I'm seeing in this person because I'm doing it too? They're, I can tell that they're really angry and bitter and I'm also really angry and bitter. You have to have the self-awareness to be able to look at your own heart and soul and go like, where am I at in this? Do I think I have overcome this? Do I think I have the character to hold somebody up. Because that's the thing. If you try to pick up a weak brother, but you don't have the strength to hold them, then you're just both going to be harmed. And the last thing I think I'd say to that is, if you're not sure, maybe go ask somebody else. And I don't mean like go tattle on the person that you want to admonish. Like this person's doing this and what do you think I should say to them? Don't do that. But ask somebody that you trust Hey, do you see this in my life? Is this a problem for me? I can't tell. Sometimes if we're proud people, if we're, if we're struggling with arrogance, um, we're blinded to the fact that we are. 
And it takes somebody that is spirit-filled that we can trust to say, actually, I see this thing in you. Or no, I, I think you're free of that. It's a good question. I hope that helps. And if, as always, if you have any clarifying questions, I'd be happy to talk about it more in person. We are going to take communion together. Um, communion has many names, the Lord's Supper, communi the communion meal. One of the older ones is the Eucharist. Eucharist is, is a combination of two Greek words that means the good grace. In Christ, Jesus' grace is offered to us constantly through his death and resurrection, right? Jesus, as we, as we take the bread and the cup, we are picturing Jesus' death. He, before we were even born, sacrifices himself on the cross, on our behalf, to take away our sins, to free us from the shackles of death, to resurrect us to new life. All of this happens apart from anything we've ever done. It's grace. It is always ours in Christ, but it is expressed in a unique way. And early on in the history of the church, they recognized that it is expressed in a unique way through the communion meal, the Eucharist, the good grace. And so this morning, as we come up and take the bread and the cup, you can, if there's wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience, take whichever one you'd like. Take it back to your seat. And I would just, I'd encourage you to Spend just a few moments practicing gratitude. Practicing identifying the things in your life that God has given you. All of the good things. And I promise you, if you take a few minutes, the list will get longer and longer and longer and longer. Especially if you're in this room this morning and you're like, man, I don't feel very joyful. Just take a few minutes before you take communion and think about all of the things that God has blessed you with, all of, the, all of the ways that he has shown his love to you. Those might be theological truths that you know to be applicable to you. They might be realities of the physical world around you. And begin to practice joy. Before we take communion together, we will... Uh, rehearse the gospel and our allegiance to our God through the Nicene Creed. And then as we sing, as we worship, you're welcome to sit or stand or come and kneel at the prayer rugs. I say this often, but sometimes changing the posture of your body helps you change the posture of your heart. But let's, uh, let's worship together through sacrament and song and I invite you to stand as we recite the creed. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.